Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This podcast presents the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. This is our 12th installment of Lord Jim, which includes chapters 31 through 34 for those following along in the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. With each episode, we recommend an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insights on aspects of the novel. And we are also sharing details about the historical context at the time of its publication via our social media accounts. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this 12th installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 31 You may imagine with what interest I listened. All these details were perceived to have some significance 24 hours later. In the morning, Cornelius made no allusion to the events of the night. I suppose you will come back to my poor house, he muttered surlily, slinking up just as Jim was entering the canoe to go over to Doraman's campong. Jim only nodded without looking at him. You find it good fun, no doubt muttered the other in a sour tone. Jim spent the day with the old Nakoda, preaching the necessity of vigorous action to the principal men of the Budges community, who had been summoned for a big talk. He remembered with pleasure how very eloquent and persuasive he had been. I managed to put some backbone into them that time, and no mistake, he said. Sharif Ali's last raid had swept the outskirts of the settlement, and some women belonging to the town had been carried off to the stockade. Sharif Ali's emissaries had been seen in the marketplace the day before, strutting about haughtily in white cloaks and boasting of the Raja's friendship for their master. One of them stood forward in the shade of a tree, and, leaning on the long barrel of a rifle, exhorted the people to prayer and repentance, advising them to kill all the strangers in their midst, some of whom, he said, were infidels and others even worse, children of Satan in the guise of Muslims. It was reported that several of the Raja's people amongst the listeners had loudly expressed their approbation. The terror amongst the common people was intense. Jim, immensely pleased with his day's work, crossed the river again before sunset. As he had got the budges irretrievably committed to action, and had made himself responsible for success on his own head, he was so elated that in the lightness of his heart he absolutely tried to be civil with Cornelius. But Cornelius became wildly jovial in response, and it was almost more than he could stand, he says, to hear his little squeaks of false laughter, to see him wriggle and blink, and suddenly catch hold of his chin and crouch low over the table with a distracted stare. The girl did not show herself, and Jim retired early. When he rose to say good night, Cornelius jumped up, knocking his chair over, and ducked out of sight as if to pick up something he had dropped. His good night came huskily from under the table. Jim was amazed to see him emerge with a dropping jaw and staring, stupidly frightened eyes. He clutched the edge of the table. "'What's the matter? Are you unwell?' asked Jim. "'Yes, yes, yes, a great colic in my stomach,' says the other, and it is Jim's opinion that it was perfectly true. If so, it was, in view of his contemplated action, an abject sign of a still imperfect callousness for which he must be given all due credit. "'Be it as it may,' Jim's slumbers were disturbed by a dream of heavens like brass resounding with a great voice, which called upon him to awake, awake, 
so loud that notwithstanding his desperate determination to sleep on, he did wake up in reality. The glare of a red spluttering conflagration going on in mid-air fell on his eyes. Coils of black thick smoke curved round the head of some apparition, some unearthly being, all in white, with a severe, drawn, anxious face. After a second or so, he recognized the girl. She was holding a dammer torch at arm's length aloft, and in a persistent, urgent monotone she was repeating, Get up! Get up! Get up! Suddenly he leaped to his feet. At once she put into his hand a revolver, his own revolver, which had been hanging on a nail, but loaded this time. He gripped it in silence, bewildered, blinking in the light. He wondered what he could do for her. She asked rapidly and very low, Can you face four men with this? He laughed while narrating this part at the recollection of his polite alacrity. It seems he made a great display of it. Certainly, of course, certainly, command me. He was not properly awake and had a notion of being very civil in these extraordinary circumstances, of showing his unquestioning, devoted readiness. She left the room, and he followed her. In the passage they disturbed an old hag who did the casual cooking of the household, though she was so decrepit as to be hardly able to understand human speech. She got up and hobbled behind them, mumbling toothlessly. On the veranda, a hammock of sailcloth, belonging to Cornelius, swayed lightly to the touch of Jim's elbow. It was empty. The Patteson establishment, like all the posts of Stein's trading company, had originally consisted of four buildings. Two of them were represented by two heaps of sticks, broken bamboos, rotten thatch, over which the four corner posts of hardwood leaned sadly at different angles. The principal storeroom, however, stood yet facing the agent's house. It was an oblong hut, built of mud and clay. It had at one end a wide door of stout planking, which so far had not come off the hinges, and in one of the side walls there was a square aperture, a sort of window with three wooden bars. Before descending the few steps, the girl turned her face over her shoulder and said quickly, You were to be set upon while you slept. Jim tells me he experienced a sense of deception. It was the old story. He was weary of these attempts upon his life. He had had his fill of these alarms. He was sick of them. He assured me he was angry with the girl for deceiving him. He had followed her under the impression that it was she who wanted his help, and now he had half a mind to turn on his heel and go back in disgust. Do you know, he commented profoundly, I rather think I was not quite myself for whole weeks on end about that time. Oh yes, you were, though, I couldn't help contradicting. But she moved on swiftly, and he followed her into the courtyard. All its fences had fallen in a long time ago. The neighbor's buffaloes would pace in the morning across the open space, snorting profoundly without haste. The very jungle was invading it already. Jim and the girl stopped in the rank grass. The light in which they stood made a dense blackness all round, and only above their heads there was an opulent glitter of stars. He told me it was a beautiful night, quite cool, with a little stir of breeze from the river. It seems he noticed its friendly beauty. Remember, this is a love story I am telling you now. A lovely night seemed to breathe on them a soft caress. The flame of the torch streamed now and then with a fluttering noise like a flag, and for a time this was the only sound. They are in the storeroom waiting, whispered the girl. They are waiting for the signal. Who's to give it? he asked. She shook the torch, which blazed up after a shower of sparks. Only you have been sleeping so restlessly, she continued in a murmur. I watched your sleep, too. You! he exclaimed, craning his neck to look about him. You think I watched on this night only, she said. 
with a sort of despairing indignation. He says it was as if he had received a blow on the chest. He gasped. He thought he had been an awful brute somehow, and he felt remorseful, touched, happy, elated. This, let me remind you again, is a love story. You can see it by the imbecility, not a repulsive imbecility. The exalted imbecility of these proceedings, the station in torchlight, as if they had come there on purpose to have it out for the edification of concealed murderers. If Sharif Ali's emissaries had been possessed, as Jim remarked, of a pennyworth of spunk, this was the time to make a rush. His heart was thumping, not with fear, but he seemed to hear the grass rustle, and he stepped smartly out of the light. Something dark, imperfectly seen, flitted rapidly out of sight. He called out in a strong voice, Cornelius! Oh, Cornelius! A profound silence succeeded. His voice did not seem to have carried twenty feet. Again the girl was by his side. Fly, she said. The old woman was coming up. Her broken figure hovered in crippled little jumps on the edge of the light. They heard her mumbling and a light, moaning sigh. Fly, repeated the girl excitedly. They are frightened now, this light, the voices. They know you are awake now. They know you are big, strong, fearless. If I am all that, he began, but she interrupted him. Yes, tonight, but what of tomorrow night, of the next night, of the night after, of all the many, many nights? Can I be always watching? A sobbing catch of her breath affected him beyond the power of words. He told me he had never felt so small, so powerless, and as to courage, what was the good of it, he thought. He was so helpless that even flight seemed of no use. And though she kept on whispering, go to Doraman, go to Doraman, with feverish insistence, he realized that for him there was no refuge from that loneliness which centupled all his dangers except in her. I thought, he said to me, that if I went away from her it would be the end of everything somehow. Only as they couldn't stop there forever in the middle of that courtyard, he made up his mind to go and look into the storehouse. He let her follow him without thinking of any protest, as if they had been indissolubly united. "'I am fearless, am I?' he muttered through his teeth. She restrained his arm. "'Wait till you hear my voice,' she said, and, torch in hand, ran lightly round the corner. He remained alone in the darkness, his face to the door. Not a sound, not a breath came from the other side. The old hag let out a dreary groan somewhere behind his back. He heard a high-pitched, almost screaming call from the girl. Now! Push! He pushed violently. The door swung with a creak and a clatter, disclosing to his intense astonishment the low dungeon-like interior illuminated by a lurid, wavering glare. A turmoil of smoke eddied down upon an empty wooden crate in the middle of the floor. A litter of rags and straw tried to soar, but only stirred feebly in the draft. She had thrust the light through the bars of the window. He saw her bare, round arm extended and rigid, holding up the torch with the steadiness of an iron bracket. A conical, ragged heap of old mats cumbered a distant corner almost to the ceiling, and that was all. He explained to me that he was bitterly disappointed at this. His fortitude had been tried by so many warnings, he had been for weeks surrounded by so many hints of danger, that he wanted the relief of some reality, of something tangible that he could meet. It would have cleared the air for a couple of hours, at least, if you know what I mean, he said to me. Jove, I had been living for days with a stone on my chest. Now at last he had thought he would get hold of something, and nothing. Not a trace, not a sign of anybody. 
He had raised his weapon as the door flew open, but now his arm fell. Fire! Defend yourself! The girl outside cried in an agonizing voice. She, being in the dark and with her arm thrust to the shoulder through the small hole, couldn't see what was going on, and she dared not withdraw the torch now to run round. "'There's nobody here!' yelled Jim contemptuously, but his impulse to burst into a resentful, exasperated laugh died without a sound. He had perceived in the very act of turning away that he was exchanging glances with a pair of eyes in the heap of mats. He saw a shifting gleam of whites. "'Come out!' he cried in a fury, a little doubtful, and a dark-faced head, a head without a body, shaped itself in the rubbish, a strangely detached head, that looked at him with a steady scowl. Next moment the whole mound stirred, and with a low grunt a man emerged swiftly, and bounded towards Jim. Behind him the mats, as it were, jumped and flew, his right arm was raised with a crooked elbow, and the dull blade of a crisp protruded from his fist held off, a little above his head. A cloth wound tight round his loins seemed dazzlingly white on his bronze skin, his naked body glistened as if wet. Jim noted all of this. He told me he was experiencing a feeling of unutterable relief, of vengeful elation. He held his shot, he says, deliberately. He held it for the tenth part of a second, for three strides of the man, an unconscionable time. He held it for the pleasure of saying to himself, that's a dead man. He was absolutely positive and certain. He let him come on because it did not matter. A dead man, anyhow. He noticed the dilated nostrils, the wide eyes, the intent, eager stillness of the face, and then he fired. The explosion in that confined space was stunning. He stepped back a pace. He saw the man jerk his head up, fling his arms forward, and drop the criss. He ascertained afterwards that he had shot him through the mouth, a little upwards, the bullet coming out high at the back of the skull. With the impetus of his rush, the man drove straight on, his face suddenly gaping disfigured, with his hands open before him gropingly, as though blinded, and landed with terrific violence on his forehead, just short of Jim's bare toes. Jim says he didn't lose the smallest detail of all this. He found himself calm, appeased, without rancor, without uneasiness, as if the death of that man had atoned for everything. The place was getting very full of sooty smoke from the torch, in which the unswaying flame burned blood red without a flicker. He walked in resolutely, striding over the dead body, and covered with his revolver another naked figure outlined vaguely at the other end. As he was about to pull the trigger, the man threw away with force a short heavy spear and squatted submissively on his hams, his back to the wall and his clasped hands between his legs. "'You want your life?' Jim said. The other made no sound. "'How many more of you?' asked Jim again. Two more, Tuan,' said the man very softly, looking with big, fascinated eyes into the muzzle of the revolver. Accordingly, two more crawled from under the mats, holding out ostentatiously their empty hands. Chapter 32 Jim took up an advantageous position and shepherded them out in a bunch through the doorway. All that time, the torch had remained vertical in the grip of a little hand, without so much as a tremble. The three men obeyed him, perfectly mute, moving automatically. He ranged them in a row. "'Link arms,' he ordered. They did so. "'The first who withdraws his arm or turns his head is a dead man,' he said. "'March!' They stepped out together, rigidly. He followed, and at the side the girl, in a trailing white gown, her black hair falling as low as her waist, bore the light." 
Erect and swaying, she seemed to glide without touching the earth. The only sound was the silky swish and rustle of the long grass. Stop! cried Jim. The river bank was steep. A great freshness ascended. The light fell on the edge of smooth dark water frothing without a ripple. Right and left, the shapes of the houses ran together below the sharp outlines of the roofs. Take my greetings to Sharif Ali, till I come myself, said Jim. Not one head of the three budged. Jump, he thundered. The three splashes made one splash. A shower flew up. Black heads bobbed convulsively and disappeared. But a great blowing and spluttering went on, growing faint, for they were diving industriously in great fear of the parting shot. Jim turned to the girl, who had been a silent and attentive observer. His heart seemed suddenly to grow too big for his breast and choke him in the hollow of his throat. This probably made him speechless for so long, and after returning his gaze she flung the burning torch with a wide sweep of the arm into the river. The ruddy, fiery glare, taking a long flight through the night, sank with a vicious hiss, and the calm, soft starlight descended upon them, unchecked. He did not tell me what it was, he said, when at last he recovered his voice. I don't suppose he could be very eloquent. The world was still, the night breathed on them, one of those nights that seemed created for the sheltering of tenderness. And there are moments when our souls, as if freed from their dark envelope, glow with an exquisite sensibility that makes certain silences more lucid than speeches. As to the girl, he told me, she broke down a bit. Excitement, don't you know? Reaction. Deucedly tired she must have been, and all that kind of thing. And, and hang it all, she was fond of me, don't you see? I, too, didn't know, of course, never entered my head. Then he got up and began to walk about in some agitation. I, I love her dearly, more than I can tell. Of course one cannot tell. You take a different view of your actions when you come to understand, when you are made to understand every day that your existence is necessary. You see, absolutely necessary, to another person. I am made to feel that. Wonderful. But only try to think what her life has been. It is too extravagantly awful, isn't it? And me finding her here like this, as you may go out for a stroll and come suddenly upon somebody drowning in a lonely dark place. Jove, no time to lose. Well, it is a trust, too. I believe I am equal to it. I must tell you the girl had left us to ourselves some time before. He slapped his chest. Yes, I feel that, but I believe I am equal to all my luck. He had the gift of finding a special meaning in everything that happened to him. This was the view he took of his love affair. It was idyllic, a little solemn, and also true, since his belief had all the unshakable seriousness of youth. Sometime after, on another occasion, he said to me, I've been only two years here, and now, upon my word, I can't conceive being able to live anywhere else. The very thought of the world outside is enough to give me a fright. Because, don't you see, he continued with downcast eyes, watching the action of his boot busied in squashing thoroughly a tiny bit of dried mud. We were strolling on the river bank. Because I have not forgotten why I came here. Not yet. I refrained from looking at him, but I think I heard a short sigh. We took a turn or two in silence. Upon my soul and conscience, he began again, if such a thing can be forgotten, then I think I have a right to dismiss it from my mind. Ask any man here. His voice changed. It is not strange, he went on in a gentle, almost yearning tone, that all these people, all these people who would do anything for me, can never be made to understand? 
Never. If you disbelieved me, I could not call them up. It seems hard somehow. I am stupid, am I not? What more can I want? If you ask them who is brave, who is true, who is just, who is it they would trust with their lives? They would say, Two and Jim. And yet they can never know the real, real truth. That's what he said to me on my last day with him. I did not let a murmur escape me. I felt he was going to say more, and come no nearer to the root of the matter. The sun, whose concentrated glare dwarfs the earth into a restless moat of dust, had sunk behind the forest, and the diffused light from an opal sky seemed to cast upon a world without shadows and without brilliance the illusion of a calm and pensive greatness. I don't know why, listening to him, I should have noted so distinctly the gradual darkening of the river, of the air, the irresistible slow work of the night settling silently on all the visible forms, effacing the outlines, burying the shapes deeper and deeper like a steady fall of impalpable black dust. Jove, he began abruptly, there are days when a fellow is too absurd for anything. Only I know I can tell you what I like. I talk about being done with it, with the bally thing at the back of my head, forgetting, hang me if I know, I can think of it quietly. After all, what has it proved? Nothing. I suppose you don't think so. I made a protesting murmur. No matter, he said. I am satisfied, nearly. I've got to look only at the face of the first man that comes along to regain my confidence. They can't be made to understand what is going on in me. What of that? Come, I haven't done so badly. Not so badly, I said. But all the same, you wouldn't like to have me aboard your own ship, hey? Confound you, I cried. Stop this. Aha, you see? he said, crowing as it were over me placidly. Only, he went on, you just try to tell this to any of them here. They would think you a fool, a liar, or worse, and so I can stand it. I've done a thing or two for them, but this is what they have done for me. My dear chap, I cried, you shall always remain for them an insoluble mystery. Thereupon we were silent. Mystery, he repeated before looking up. Well, then let me always remain here. After the sun had set, the darkness seemed to drive upon us, borne in every faint puff of the breeze. In the middle of a hedged path I saw the arrested, gaunt, watchful, and apparently one-legged silhouette of Tamitam, and across the dusky space my eye detected something white moving to and fro behind the supports of the roof. As soon as Jim, with Tamitam at his heels, had started upon his evening rounds, I went up to the house alone, and unexpectedly found myself waylaid by the girl, who had been clearly waiting for this opportunity. It was hard to tell you what it was precisely she wanted to wrest from me. Obviously, it would be something very simple, the simplest impossibility of the world, as, for instance, the exact description of the form of a cloud. She wanted an assurance, a statement, a promise, an explanation. I don't know how to call it. The thing has no name. It was dark under the projecting roof, and all I could see were the flowing lines of her gown, the pale small oval of her face with the white flash of her teeth, and turned towards me, the big somber orbits of her eyes, where there seemed to be a faint stir, such as you may fancy you can detect when you plunge your gaze to the bottom of an immensely deep well. What is it that moves there, you ask yourself? Is it a blind monster, or only a lost gleam from the universe? It occurred to me, don't laugh, that all these things being dissimilar, she was more inscrutable in her childish ignorance than the sphinx propounding childish riddles to wayfarers. 
She had been carried off to Patasan before her eyes were open. She had grown up there. She had seen nothing. She had known nothing. She had no conception of anything. I ask myself whether she were sure that anything else existed. What notion she may have formed of the outside world is to me inconceivable. All that she knew of its inhabitants were a betrayed woman and a sinister pantaloon. Her lover also came to her from there, gifted with irresistible seductions. But what would become of her if he should return to these inconceivable regions that seemed always to claim back their own? Her mother had warned her of this with tears before she died. She had caught hold of my arm firmly, and as soon as I had stopped, she had withdrawn her hand in haste. She was audacious and shrinking. She feared nothing, but she was checked by the profound incertitude and the extreme strangeness, a brave person groping in the dark. I belonged to this unknown that might claim Jim for its own at any moment. I was, as it were, in the secret of its nature and its intentions, the confidant of a threatening mystery, armed with its power, perhaps. I believe she supposed I could, with a word, whisk Jim away out of her very arms. It is my sober conviction that she went through agonies of apprehension during my long talks with Jim, through a real and intolerable anguish that might have conceivably driven her into plotting my murder, had the fierceness of her soul been equal to the tremendous situation it had created. This is my impression, and it is all I can give you. The whole thing dawned gradually upon me, and as it got clearer and clearer, I was overwhelmed by a slow, incredulous amazement. She made me believe her, but there is no word that on my lips could render the effect of the headlong and vehement whisper, of the soft, passionate tones, of the sudden breathless pause and the appealing movement of the white arms extended swiftly. They fell. The ghostly figure swayed like a slender tree in the wind, the pale oval of the face drooped. It was impossible to distinguish her features. The darkness of the eyes was unfathomable. Two wide sleeves uprose in the dark like unfolding wings, and she stood silent, holding her head in her hands. Joining us now to talk about this section of the text and provide an article recommendation is Lauren Gargani, Library Director at Maine Maritime Academy. Hello, Lauren. Welcome back. Hello, Anne. So we have a pretty long section today, so I thought that if you just give us kind of a brief article recommendation, then our, I know our listeners will really appreciate the point in the right direction. We can work with that. Absolutely. So what do you have for us today? So I really do think this one is worth reading. So maybe that's a good reason to spend less time summarizing it. Um, the title of this article is Seeing the Animal, Colonial Space and Movement in Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim. Okay, and what's that about? Yeah, so the author here is Sanjay Krishnan, and he's writing about a really specific um, you know, concern with the portrayals, especially of natives and non-whites, non-Europeans in Lord Jim, and talking about animal um, imagery, but not in the context of like animal as metaphor for native, more in terms of like defining some ideas of how we view animals, you know, their capacity for reasoning or their ability to understand or impact the world around them. Um, because he's drawing some parallels and saying that some of the depictions of non-Europeans in the book 
really characterize them more in the way that we would talk about animals. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's kind of defining those um, and and sketching out some of those instances. There is a lot here. I know that you and I have talked, um, you know, both recorded and not about, you know, some of the complexities of this novel and some of these depictions that we are, you know, definitely feeling differently about a hundred plus years after its publication. Yeah, that sounds like a, a really interesting take on it. It is, it is. I think there's a lot that's valuable here. And, you know, there are examples that are pulled from all, um, you know, stages in the novel and, you know, just so much to think about. And, you know, a, I could share a couple quotations, um, but there's, you know, the idea that um, he says Marlowe's narrative alternately presupposes a hierarchy and an absolute gulf that separates European from native consciousness in the novel. Even the least sympathetic or thoughtful Europeans, such as the German captain or the second engineer of the Patna, possess the ability to, eva- sorry, possess the capacity to evaluate and to judge. The same cannot be said of the Malay helmsman. So, you know, that's the, that's the example that he starts with. And then there's a whole lot here to think about. Um, and then he goes on later in the article to say, it is my belief that the native is described as an animal in the context of a Western modernity whose representatives, artistic and political, take technological superiority and material domination as justification of their belief in an essential difference between white and non-white. Yeah, I see that so much, um, you know, in this section and some of the others, you know, looking at Jim, who seems to consistently not rise to the challenge. And here he's raised to the level of deity in this society, apparently because the people there think so highly of him when us readers are really thinking some very negative things about his capacity. Right. Right. So, you know, again, there's, there's a lot here. Um, There's a really, you know, interesting meditation on, you know, like we ascribe this interiority and this consciousness to, um, and and by me, I mean, you know, really the novel, you know, gives this, as a, as a given to the white characters. And it's, it's very different um, for other characters in the book. So I, you know, again, I think there's so much here and I'm so glad I stumbled across this one because I really think it helps with, you know, some of the conversations that I think really need to happen around this book when we look at these portrayals that are, you know, absolutely problematic um, or curious. Yeah, absolutely. So could you tell us the title and author and the journal that this came from just once more? And we'll include that in the show notes. Absolutely. This is a few years old. It was published July 1st, 2004 in Novel, a forum on fiction. And the author is Sanjay Krishnan. And the title of the article, again, is Seeing the Animal, Colonial Space and Movement in Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim. That's great. Thank you. And I know that the show notes don't show up exactly the same in the different podcatchers. So if you're wanting to see the show notes and you've been a little frustrated by that, you can always go straight to the source. The podcast is hosted on anchor.fm slash NML dash Lord Jim. So that's NML dash Lord Jim. And you can see all of the show notes and all of the episodes there, just in case your podcatcher doesn't include those show notes. 
Um, but thank you, Lauren, so much. That sounds like a really phenomenal one. And I'll highlight that if you're listening uh, to this and you haven't looked up an article yet, this might be the one to look up. And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 33 I was immensely touched. Her youth, her ignorance, her pretty beauty, which had the simple charm and the delicate vigor of a wild flower, her pathetic pleading, her helplessness, appealed to me with almost the strength of her own unreasonable and natural fear. She feared the unknown as we all do, and her ignorance made the unknown infinitely vast. I stood for it, for myself, for you fellows, for all the world that neither cared for Jim nor needed him in the least. I would have been ready enough to answer for the indifference of the teeming earth, but for the reflection that he too belonged to this mysterious unknown of her fears, and that, however much I stood for, I did not stand for him. This made me hesitate. A murmur of hopeless pain unsealed my lips. I began by protesting that I at least had come with no intention to take Jim away. Why did I come, then? After a slight movement, she was as still as a marble statue in the night. I tried to explain briefly. Friendship, business. If I had any wish in the matter, it was rather to see him stay. They always leave us, she murmured. The breath of sad wisdom from the grave which her piety wreathed with flowers seemed to pass in a faint sigh. Nothing, I said, could separate Jim from her. It is my firm conviction now. It was my conviction at the time. It was the only possible conclusion from the facts of the case. It was not made more certain by her whispering in a tone in which one speaks to oneself. He swore this to me. Did you ask him? I said. She made a step nearer. No, never. She had asked him only to go away. It was that night on the river bank, after he had killed the man, after she had flung the torch in the water because he was looking at her so. There was too much light, and the danger was over then, for a little time, for a little time. He said then he would not abandon her to Cornelius. She had insisted. She wanted him to leave her. He said that he could not, that it was impossible. He trembled while he said this. She had felt him tremble. One does not require much imagination to see the scene, almost to hear the whispers. She was afraid for him, too. I believe that she saw in him only a predestined victim of dangers which she understood better than himself. Though by nothing but his mere presence he had mastered her heart, had filled all her thoughts, and had possessed himself of all her affections. She underestimated his chances of success. It is obvious that at about that time everybody was inclined to underestimate his chances. Strictly speaking, he didn't seem to have any. I know this was Cornelius's view. He confessed that much to me in extenuation of the shady part he had played in Sharif Ali's plot to do away with the infidel. Even Sharif Ali himself, as it seems certain now, had nothing but contempt for the white man. Jim was to be murdered mainly on religious grounds, I believe. A simple act of piety, and so far infinitely meritorious, but otherwise without much importance. In the last part of this opinion, Cornelius concurred. Honorable sir, he argued abjectly on the only occasion he managed to have me to himself. Honorable sir, how was I to know? Who was he? What could he do to make people believe him? What did Mr. Stein mean by sending a boy like that to talk big to an old servant? I was ready to save him for eighty dollars. Only eighty dollars. Why didn't the fool go? 
Was I to get stabbed myself for the sake of a stranger? He groveled in spirit before me, with his body doubled up insinuatingly, and his hands hovering about my knees, as though he were ready to embrace my legs. What's eighty dollars, an insignificant sum to give to a defenseless old man, ruined for life by a deceased she-devil? Here he wept. But I anticipate. I didn't that night chance upon Cornelius till I had had it out with the girl. She was unselfish when she urged Jim to leave her, and even to leave the country. It was his danger that was foremost in her thoughts, even if she wanted to save herself too, perhaps unconsciously, but then look at the warning she had, look at the lesson that could be drawn from every moment of the recently ended life in which all her memories were centered. She fell at his feet, she told me so, there by the river, in the discreet light of stars which showed nothing except great masses of silent shadows, indefinite open spaces, and trembling faintly upon the broad stream made it appear as wide as the sea. He had lifted her up. He lifted her up, and then she would struggle no more. Of course not. Strong arms, a tender voice, a stalwart shoulder to rest her poor lonely little head upon. The need, the infinite need, of all this for the aching heart, for the bewildered mind. The promptings of youth, the necessity of the moment. What would you have? One understands, unless one is incapable of understanding anything under the sun. And so she was content to be lifted up and held. You know, Jove, this is serious. No nonsense in it, as Jim had whispered hurriedly with a troubled, concerned face on the threshold of his house. I don't know so much about nonsense, but there is nothing light-hearted in their romance. They came together under the shadow of a life's disaster, like knight and maiden meeting to exchange vows amongst haunted ruins. The starlight was good enough for that story, a light so faint and remote that it cannot resolve shadows into shapes, and shows the other shore of a stream. I did look upon the stream that night, and from the very place. It rolled silent and as black as sticks. The next day I went away, but I am not likely to forget what it was she wanted to be saved from when she entreated him to leave her while there was time. She told me what it was, calmed. She was now too passionately interested for mere excitement in a voice as quiet in the obscurity as her white, half-lost figure. She told me, I didn't want to die weeping. I thought I had not heard aright. You did not want to die weeping? I repeated after her. Like my mother, she added readily. The outlines of her white shape did not stir in the least. My mother had wept bitterly before she died, she explained. An inconceivable calmness seemed to have risen from the ground around us, imperceptibly, like the still rise of a flood in the night, obliterating the familiar landmarks of emotions. There came upon me, as though I had felt myself losing my footing in the midst of waters, a sudden dread, the dread of the unknown depths. She went on explaining that, during the last moments, being alone with her mother, she had to leave the side of the couch to go and set her back against the door in order to keep Cornelius out. He desired to get in, and kept on drumming with both fists, only desisting now and again to shout huskily, Let me in! Let me in! Let me in! In a far corner, upon a few mats, the moribund woman, already speechless and unable to lift her arm, rolled her head over, and with a feeble movement of her hand seemed to command, No, no. And the obedient daughter, setting her shoulders with all her strength against the door, was looking on. The tears fell from her eyes, and then she died, concluded the girl, in an imperturbable monotone, 
which more than anything else, more than the white statuesque immobility of her person, more than mere words could do, troubled my mind profoundly with the passive, irremediable horror of the scene. It had the power to drive me out of my conception of existence, out of that shelter each of us makes for himself to creep under in moments of danger, as a tortoise withdraws within its shell. For a moment I had a view of a world that seemed to wear a vast and dismal aspect of disorder, while in truth, thanks to our unwearied efforts, it is as sunny an arrangement of small conveniences as the mind of man can conceive. But still, it was only a moment. I went back into my shell directly. One must, don't you know? Though I seemed to have lost all my words in the chaos of dark thoughts I had contemplated for a second or two beyond the pale. These came back, too, very soon, for words also belong to the sheltering conception of light and order which is our refuge. I had them ready at my disposal before she whispered softly. He swore he would never leave me when we stood there alone. He swore to me. And it is possible that you, you, do not believe him? I asked, sincerely reproachful, genuinely shocked. Why couldn't she believe? Wherefore this craving for incertitude, this clinging to fear, as if incertitude and fear had been the safeguards of her love? It was monstrous. She should have made for herself a shelter of inexpungible peace out of that honest affection. She had not the knowledge, not the skill, perhaps. The night had come on apace, it had grown pitch dark where we were, so that without stirring she had faded like the intangible form of a wistful and perverse spirit. And suddenly I heard her quiet whisper again, other men had sworn the same thing. It was like a meditative comment on some thoughts full of sadness, of awe, and she added, still lower if possible, my father did. She paused the time to draw an inaudible breath. Her father, too. These were the things she knew. At once I said, ah, but it is not like that. This, it seemed, she did not intend to dispute. But after a time, the strange, still whisper wandering dreamily in the air stole into my ears. Why is he different? Is he better? Is he... Upon my word of honor... I broke in. I believe he is. We subdued our tones to a mysterious pitch. Amongst the huts of Jim's workmen, they were mostly liberated slaves from the Sharif stockade, somebody started a shrill, drawling song. Across the river a big fire, at Doraman's, I think, made a glowing ball, completely isolated in the night. Is he more true? she murmured. Yes, I said. More true than any other man, she repeated in lingering accents. Nobody here, I said, would dream of doubting his word. Nobody would dare, except you. I think she made a movement at this. More brave, she went on in a changed tone. Fear will never drive him away from you, I said a little nervously. The song stopped short on a shrill note, and was succeeded by several voices talking in the distance. Jim's voice, too. I was struck by her silence. What has he been telling you? He has been telling you something? I asked. There was no answer. What is it he told you? I insisted. Do you think I can tell you? How am I to know? How am I to understand? She cried at last. There is a stir. I believe she was wringing her hands. There is something he can never forget. So much the better for you, I said gloomily. What is it? What is it? She put an extraordinary force of appeal into her supplicating tone. He says he had been afraid, 
How can I believe this? Am I a mad woman to believe this? You all remember something. You all go back to it. What is it? You tell me. What is the thing? Is it alive? Is it dead? I hate it. It is cruel. Has it got a face and a voice, this calamity? Will he see it? Will he hear it? In his sleep, perhaps, when he cannot see me, and then arise and go. Ah, I shall never forgive him. My mother had forgiven, but I never. Will it be a sign, a call? It was a wonderful experience. She mistrusted his very slumbers, and she seemed to think I could tell her why. Thus a poor mortal seduced by the charm of an apparition might have tried to wring from another ghost the tremendous secret of the claim the other world holds over a disembodied soul astray amongst the passions of this earth. The very ground on which I stood seemed to melt under my feet. And it was so simple, too. But if the spirits evoked by our fears and our unrest have ever to vouch for each other's constancy before the forlorn magicians that we are, then I, I alone of us dwellers in the flesh, have shuddered in the hopeless chill of such a task. A sign, a call. How telling in its expression was her ignorance. A few words. How she came to know them, how she came to pronounce them, I can't imagine. Women find their inspiration in the stress of moments that for us are merely awful, absurd, or futile. To discover that she had a voice at all was enough to strike awe into my heart. Had a spurned stone cried out in pain, it could not have appeared a greater and more pitiful miracle. These few sounds wandering in the dark had made their two benighted lives tragic to my mind. It was impossible to make her understand. I chafed silently at my impotence. And Jim, too, poor devil. Who would need him? Who would remember him? He had what he wanted. His very existence probably had been forgotten by this time. They had mastered their fates. They were tragic. Her immobility before me was clearly expectant, and my part was to speak for my brother from the realm of forgetful shade. I was deeply moved at my responsibility and at her distress. I would have given anything for the power to soothe her frail soul, tormenting itself in its invincible ignorance like a small bird beating about the cruel wires of a cage. Nothing easier than to say, have no fear, nothing more difficult. How does one kill fear, I wonder? How do you shoot a spectre through the heart, slash off its spectral head, take it by its spectral throat? It is an enterprise you rush into while you dream, and are glad to make your escape with wet hair and every limb shaking. The bullet is not run, the blade not forged, the man not born. Even the winged words of truth drop at your feet like lumps of lead. You require for such a desperate encounter an enchanted and poisoned shaft dipped in a lie too subtle to be found on earth. An enterprise for a dream, my masters. I began my exorcism with a heavy heart, with a sort of sullen anger in it, too. Jim's voice, suddenly raised with a certain intonation, carried across the courtyard, reproving the carelessness of some dumb sinner by the riverside. Nothing, I said, speaking in a distinct murmur. There could be nothing in that unknown world she fancied, so eager to rob her of her happiness. There is nothing, neither living nor dead, there was no face, no voice, no power, that could tear Jim from her side. I drew breath, and she whispered softly, He told me so. He told you the truth, I said. Nothing, she sighed out, and abruptly turned upon me with a barely audible intensity of tone. Why did you come to us from out there? He speaks of you too often. You make me afraid. Do you, do you want him? 
A sort of stealthy fierceness had crept into our hurried mutters. I shall never come again, I said bitterly, and I don't want him. No one wants him. No one, she repeated in a tone of doubt. No one, I affirmed, feeling myself swayed by some strange excitement. You think him strong, wise, courageous, great. Why not believe him to be true, too? I shall go tomorrow, and that is the end. You shall never be troubled by a voice from there again. This world you don't know is too big to miss him. You understand? Too big. You've got his heart in your hand. You must feel that. You must know that. Yes, I know that, she breathed out, hard and still, as a statue might whisper. I felt I had done nothing. And what is it that I had wished to do? I am not sure now. At the time, I was animated by an inexplicable ardor, as if before some great and necessary task, the influence of the moment upon my mental and emotional state. There are in all our lives such moments, such influences, coming from the outside, as it were, irresistible, incomprehensible, as if brought about by the mysterious conjunctions of the planets. She owned, as I had put it to her, his heart. She had that and everything else, if she could only believe it. What I had to tell her was that in the whole world there was no one who ever would need his heart, his mind, his hand. It was a common fate, and yet it seemed an awful thing to say of any man. She listened without a word, and her stillness now was like the protest of an invincible unbelief. What need she care for the world beyond the forests? I asked. From all the multitudes that peopled the vastness of that unknown there would come, I assured her, as long as he lived, neither a call nor a sign for him. Never. I was carried away. Never, never. I remember with wonder the sort of dogged fierceness I displayed. I had the illusion of having got the spectre by the throat at last. Indeed, the whole real thing has left behind the detailed and amazing impression of a dream. Why should she fear? She knew him to be strong, true, wise, brave. He was all that. Certainly. He was more. He was great, invincible, and the world did not want him. It had forgotten him. It would not even know him. I stopped. The silence over Patisan was profound, and the feeble dry sound of a paddle striking the side of the canoe somewhere in the middle of the river seemed to make it infinite. Why? she murmured. I felt that sort of rage one feels during a hard tussle. The specter was trying to slip out of my grasp. Why? she repeated louder. Tell me. And as I remained confounded, she stamped with her foot like a spoilt child. Why? Speak. You want to know? I asked in a fury. Yes, she cried. Because he is not good enough, I said brutally. During the moment's pause, I noticed the fire on the other shore blaze up, dilating the circle of its glow like an amazed stare, and contract suddenly to a red pinpoint. I only knew how close to me she had been when I felt the clutch of her fingers on my forearm. Without raising her voice, she threw into it an infinity of scathing contempt, bitterness, and despair. This is the very thing he said. You lie. The last two words she cried at me in the native dialect. Hear me out, I entreated. She caught her breath tremulously, flung my arm away. Nobody, nobody is good enough, I began with the greatest earnestness. I could hear the sobbing labor of her breath frightfully quickened. I hung my head. What was the use? Footsteps were approaching. I slipped away without another word. Chapter 34 
Marlowe swung his legs out, got up quickly and staggered a little, as though he had been set down after a rush through space. He leaned his back against the balustrade and faced a disordered array of long cane chairs. The bodies prone in them seemed startled out of their torpor by his movement. One or two sat up as if alarmed. Here and there a cigar glowed yet. Marlowe looked at them all with the eyes of a man returning from the excessive remoteness of a dream. A throat was cleared, a calm voice encouraged negligently, well? Nothing, said Marlowe, with a slight start. He had told her, that's all. She did not believe him. Nothing more. As to myself, I do not know whether it be just, proper, decent for me to rejoice or to be sorry. For my part, I cannot say what I believed. Indeed, I don't know to this day, and never shall, probably. But what did the poor devil believe himself? Truth shall prevail. Don't you know magna est veritas el... Yes, when it gets a chance. There is a law, no doubt. And likewise a law regulates your luck in the throwing of dice. It is not justice the servant of men, but accident, hazard, fortune, the ally of patient time, that holds an even and scrupulous balance. Both of us had said the very same thing. Did we both speak the truth, or one of us did, or neither? Marlowe paused, crossed his arms on his breast, and in a changed tone. She said we lied. Poor soul. Well, let's leave it to chance, whose ally is time that cannot be hurried, and whose enemy is death that will not wait. I had retreated, a little cowed, I must own. I had tried to fall with fear itself and got thrown, of course. I had only succeeded in adding to her anguish the hint of some mysterious collusion, of an inexplicable and incomprehensible conspiracy to keep her forever in the dark. And it had come easily, naturally, unavoidably, by his act, by her own act. It was as though I had been shown the working of the implacable destiny of which we are the victims and the tools. It was appalling to think of the girl whom I had left standing there motionless. Jim's footsteps had a fateful sound as he tramped by without seeing me in his heavy-laced boots. "'What, no lights?' he said in a loud, surprised voice. "'What are you doing in the dark, you two? Next moment he caught sight of her, I suppose. "'Hello, girl,' he cried cheerily. "'Hello, boy.' she answered at once, with amazing pluck. This was their usual greeting to each other, and the bit of swagger she would put into her rather high but sweet voice was very droll, pretty, and childlike. It delighted Jim greatly. This was the last occasion on which I heard them exchange this familiar hail, and it struck a chill into my heart. There was the high, sweet voice, the pretty effort, the swagger, but it all seemed to die out prematurely, and the playful call sounded like a moan, it was too confoundedly awful. "'What have you done with Marlowe?' Jim was asking. And then, "'Gone down, has he? Funny, I didn't meet him. You there, Marlowe?' I didn't answer. I wasn't going in, not yet at any rate. I really couldn't. While he was calling me, I was engaged in making my escape through a little gate leading out upon a stretch of newly cleared ground. No, I couldn't face them yet. I walked hastily with lowered head along a trodden path. The ground rose gently, the few big trees had been felled, the undergrowth had been cut down, and the grass fired. He had a mind to try a coffee plantation there. The big hill, rearing its double summit coal-black in the clear yellow glow of the rising moon, seemed to cast its shadow upon the ground, prepared for that experiment. He was going to try ever so many experiments. I had admired his energy, his enterprise, and his shrewdness. Nothing on earth seemed less real now than his plans, his energy, and his enthusiasm. And raising my eyes, 
I saw part of the moon glittering through the bushes at the bottom of the chasm. For a moment it looked as though the smooth disk, falling from its place in the sky upon the earth, had rolled to the bottom of that precipice. Its ascending movement was like a leisurely rebound. It disengaged itself from the tangle of twigs, the bare contorted limb of some tree growing on the slope, made a black crack right across its face. It threw its level rays afar as if from a cavern, and in this mournful eclipse-like light the stumps of felled trees uprose very dark. The heavy shadows fell at my feet on all sides, my own moving shadow, and across my path the shadow of the solitary grave perpetually garlanded with flowers. In the darkened moonlight the interlaced blossoms took on shapes foreign to one's memory and colors indefinable to the eye, as though they had been special flowers gathered by no man, grown not in this world, and destined for the use of the dead alone. Their powerful scent hung in the warm air, making it thick and heavy like the fumes of incense. The lumps of white coral shone round the dark mound like a chaplet of bleached skulls, and everything around it was so quiet that when I stood still all sound and all movement in the world seemed to come to an end. It was a great peace, as if the earth had been one grave, and for a time I stood there thinking mostly of the living, who, buried in remote places out of the knowledge of mankind, still are fated to share in its tragic or grotesque miseries. In its noble struggles, too, who knows? The human heart is vast enough to contain all the world. It is valiant enough to bear the burden, but where is the courage that would cast it off? I suppose I must have fallen into a sentimental mood. I only know that I stood there long enough for the sense of utter solitude to get hold of me so completely that all I had lately seen, all I had heard, and the very human speech itself, seemed to have passed away out of existence, living only for a while longer in my memory, as though I had been the last of mankind. It was a strange and melancholy illusion, evolved half-consciously like all our illusions, which I suspect only to be visions of remote, unattainable truth seen dimly. This was, indeed, one of the lost, forgotten, unknown places of the earth. I had looked under its obscure surface, and I felt that when tomorrow I had left it forever, it would slip out of existence, to live only in my memory till I myself passed into oblivion. I have that feeling about me now. Perhaps it is that feeling which has incited me to tell you the story, to try to hand over to you, as it were, its very existence, its reality, the truth disclosed in a moment of illusion. Cornelius broke upon it. He bolted out, vermin-like, from the long grass growing in a depression of the ground. I believe his house was rotting somewhere nearby, though I've never seen it, not having been far enough in that direction. He ran towards me upon the path. His feet, shod in dirty white shoes, twinkled on the dark earth. He pulled himself up and began to whine and cringe under a tall stovepipe hat. His dried-up little carcass was swallowed up, totally lost, in a suit of black broadcloth. That was his costume for holidays and ceremonies, and it reminded me that this was the fourth Sunday I had spent in Patasan. All the time of my stay, I had been vaguely aware of his desire to confide in me, if he only could get me all to himself. He hung about with an eager, craving look on his sour yellow little face, but his timidity had kept him back as much as my natural reluctance to have anything to do with such an unsavory creature. He would have succeeded, nevertheless, had he not been so ready to slink off as soon as you looked at him. He would slink off before Jim's severe gaze, before my own, which I tried to make indifferent even before Tam and Tom's surly, superior glance. He was perpetually slinking away, 
Whenever seen, he was seen moving off deviously, his face over his shoulder with either a mistrustful snarl or a woe-begone, piteous, mute aspect, but no assumed expression could conceal this innate, irremediable objectness of his nature, any more than an arrangement of clothing can conceal some monstrous deformity of the body. I don't know whether it was the demoralization of my utter defeat in my encounter with a specter of fear less than an hour ago, but I let him capture me without even a show of resistance. I was doomed to be the recipient of confidences, and to be confronted with unanswerable questions. It was trying, but the contempt, the unreasoned contempt, the man's appearance provoked made it easier to bear. He couldn't possibly matter. Nothing mattered, since I had made up my mind that Jim, for whom alone I cared, had at last mastered his fate. He had told me he was satisfied, nearly. This is going further than most of us dare. I, who have the right to think myself good enough, dare not. Neither does any of you here, I suppose. Marlowe paused, as if expecting an answer. Nobody spoke. Quite right, he began again. Let no soul know, since the truth can be wrung out of us only by some cruel, little, awful catastrophe. But he is one of us, and he could say he was satisfied. Nearly. Just fancy this. Nearly satisfied. One could almost envy him his catastrophe. Nearly satisfied. After this, nothing could matter. It did not matter who suspected him, who trusted him, who loved him, who hated him especially as it was Cornelius who hated him. Yet after all this was a kind of recognition. You shall judge of a man by his foes as well as by his friends, and this enemy of Jim was such as no decent man would be ashamed to own, without, however, making too much of him. This was the view Jim took, and in which I shared. But Jim disregarded him on general grounds. My dear Marlowe, he said, I feel that if I go straight, nothing can touch me. Indeed I do. Now you have been long enough here to have a good look round, and, frankly, don't you think I am pretty safe? It all depends upon me, and, by Jove, I have lots of confidence in myself. The worst thing he could do would be to kill me, I suppose. I don't think for a moment he would. He couldn't, you know. Not if I were myself to hand him a loaded rifle for the purpose and then turn my back on him. That's the sort of thing he is. And suppose he would. Suppose he could. Well, what of that? I didn't come here flying for my life, did I? I came here to set my back against the wall, and I am going to stay here. Till you are quite satisfied, I struck in. We were sitting, at the time, under the roof in the stern of his boat. Twenty paddles flashed like one, ten on a side, striking the water with a single splash, while behind our backs Tam et Tam dipped silently right and left and stared right down the river, attentive to keep the long canoe in the greatest strength of the current. Jim bowed his head, and our last talk seemed to flicker out for good. He was seeing me off as far as the mouth of the river. The schooner had left the day before, working down and drifting on the ebb, while I had prolonged my stay overnight. And now he was seeing me off. Jim had been a little angry with me for mentioning Cornelius at all. I had not, in truth, said much. The man was too insignificant to be dangerous, though he was as full of hate as he could hold. He had called me Honorable Sir at every second sentence, and had whined at my elbow as he followed me from the grave of his late wife to the gate of Jim's compound. He declared himself the most unhappy of men, a victim crushed like a worm. He entreated me to look at him. I wouldn't turn my head to do so, but I could see out of the corner of my eye his obsequious shadow gliding after mine, 
while the moon, suspended on our right hand, seemed to gloat serenely upon the spectacle. He tried to explain, as I've told you, his share of the events of the memorable night. It was a matter of expediency. How could he know who was going to get the upper hand? I would have saved him, honorable sir. I would have saved him for eighty dollars, he protested in dulcet tones, keeping a pace behind me. He has saved himself, I said, and he has forgiven you. I heard a sort of tittering, and turned upon him. At once he appeared ready to take to his heels. What are you laughing at? I asked, standing still. Don't be deceived, honorable sir, he shrieked, seemingly losing all control over his feelings. He save himself. He knows nothing, honorable sir, nothing whatever. Who is he? What does he want here? The big thief, what does he want here? He throws dust into everybody's eyes. He throws dust into your eyes, honorable sir. But he can't throw dust into my eyes. He is a big fool, honorable sir. I laughed contemptuously, and turning on my heel, began to walk on again. He ran up to my elbow and whispered forcibly, He's no more than a little child here, like a little child, a little child. Of course I didn't take the slightest notice, and seeing the time pressed, because we were approaching the bamboo fence that glittered over the blackened ground of the clearing, he came to the point. He commenced by being abjectly lachrymose. His great misfortunes had affected his head. He hoped I would kindly forget what nothing but his troubles made him say. He didn't mean anything by it. Only the Honorable Sir did not know what it was to be ruined, broken down, trampled upon. After this introduction, he approached the matter near his heart, but in such a rambling, ejaculatory, craven fashion, that for a long time I couldn't make out what he was driving at. He wanted me to intercede with Jim in his favor. It seemed, too, to be some sort of money affair. I heard time and again the words, moderate provision, suitable present. He seemed to be claiming value for something, and he even went the length of saying with some warmth that life was not worth having if a man were to be robbed of everything. I did not breathe a word, of course, but neither did I stop my ears. The gist of the affair, which became clear to me gradually, was in this, that he regarded himself as entitled to some money in exchange for the girl. He had brought her up, somebody else's child. Great trouble and pains, old man now, suitable present. If the Honorable Sir would say a word, I stood to look at him with curiosity, and fearful lest I should think him extortionate, I suppose, he hastily brought himself to make a concession. In consideration of a suitable present, given at once, he would, he declared, be willing to undertake the charge of the girl, without any other provision, when the time came for the gentleman to go home. His little yellow face, all crumpled as though it had been squeezed together, expressed the most anxious, eager avarice. His voice whined coaxingly, no more trouble, natural guardian, a sum of money. I stood there and marveled. That kind of thing, with him, was evidently a vocation. I discovered suddenly in his cringing attitude a sort of assurance, as though he had been all his life dealing in certitudes. He must have thought I was dispassionately considering his proposal, because he became as sweet as honey. Every gentleman made a provision when the time came to go home he began insinuatingly. I slammed the little gate. In this case, Mr. Cornelius, I said, the time will never come. He took a few seconds to gather this in. What? he fairly squealed. Why, I continued from the side of the gate, haven't you heard him say so himself? He will never go home. Oh, this is too much, he shouted. 
he would not address me as honored sir any more. He was very still for a time, and then, without a trace of humility, began very low. Never go. Ah, he, he, he comes here devil knows from where, comes here devil knows why, to trample on me until I die. Ah, trample. He stamped softly with both feet. Trample like this. Nobody knows why, till I die. His voice became quite extinct. He was bothered by a little cough. He came up close to the fence and told me, dropping into a confidential and piteous tone, that he would not be trampled upon. Patience, patience, he muttered, striking his breast. I had done laughing at him, but unexpectedly he treated me to a wild, cracked burst of it. Ha, 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 we shall see, we shall see. What, steal from me, steal from everything, everything, everything. His head drooped on one shoulder. His hands were hanging before him, lightly clasped. One would have thought he had cherished the girl with surpassing love, that his spirit had been crushed and his heart broken by the most cruel of spoliations. Suddenly he lifted his head and shot out an infamous word. Like her mother, she is like her deceitful mother, exactly, in her face too, in her face, the devil. He leaned his forehead against the fence, and in that position uttered threats and horrible blasphemies in Portuguese and very weak ejaculations, mingled with miserable plaints and groans, coming out with a heave of the shoulders as though he had been overtaken by a deadly fit of sickness. It was an inexplicably grotesque and vile performance, and I hastened away. He tried to shout something after me, some disparagement of Jim, I believe, not too loud, though, we were too near the house. All I heard distinctly was, no more than a little child, a little child. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.